Hey there, welcome to another episode of LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank. This week, Oscar award-winning actor and activist Marley Matlin is going to stop by to tell us about her new film, Coda, which won the Grand Jury Prize at this year's Sundance Film Festival. Then we're going to chat with friend of the show, the writer Melissa Phoebos, about her extraordinary book, Girlhood, which looks at the forces that shape girls' lives and also what that means for the adults that they become. Then we're going to hear some new music from British folk blues duo Ida May. They wrote their latest album by cutting and pasting music riffs and poetry while sitting in the back of a Kia as they rode across the U.S. Uh, so we're going to hear more about that. Speaking of trips, we're about to take one together on this week's Live Wire. So buckle up, get your snacks handy, and settle in, because it all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going very well. I'm excited to bring you another edition of Station Location Identification Examination. We're not known for our brevity here on Livewire. I'm so excited. Yay! I'm going to give you a mystery uh, place, and you got to try to guess where I'm talking about, okay? Okay. When pioneers arrived in this state, they noticed that there were very few trees, and so it actually became the site of the first Arbor Day. This was in 1872, which has resulted in the planting of more than one million trees. Okay. Okay. Pioneer, uh, flat place. Got to be on the Great Plains somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, but 1870, so kind of late. I like how your brain is working. Not a Kansas. It's not an Iowa. Uh, Dakotas don't seem to have trees now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nebraska? You are absolutely right, Elena. Yeah! Nebraska, where we are very happy to have recently started airing on Nebraska Public Media. Amazing. Shout out to all of our corn huskers and folks out there in Nebraska. Uh, glad we could uh, plant the tree that is Livewire. Uh, <laughs> it's the beginning of the show. I'm still kind of, I'm, I'm warming up, okay? It's going to get better from here, I promise. Um, speaking of which, should we start the show, Elena? In honor of Arbor Day, let's you it. <laughs> Is that a tree? Yeah. <laughs> a you tree. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, actor and deaf activist Marley Matlin. I've seen too many times when hearing actors play deaf characters as if they were costumes you could put on and take off at the end of the day. 
writer Melissa Phoebos. I didn't want to write a grim book about how our society messed me up. With music by blues duo Ida May. We weren't romantically involved when we first started working together, so we still squabble like teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everybody for tuning in this week. We had a really fun show in store for you. We did ask the Livewire audience a question, uh, which was if you could give the teenage version of you, any advice, what would it be? This is because Melissa Phoebos' book really deals a lot with uh, that part of her life and the effect that it had on her and has on other uh, women in this country. So we're going to read folks' response to that coming up in a minute. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is our little segment at the top of the show reminding us and everyone else that there is still good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news that you heard all week? Okay, so this best news actually comes from a listener. Someone suggested this one to me. Hey, all right. If you have ideas, send them in. We're always up for good news that the listeners have uh, have identified. And send the best ones to me. Yeah, definitely. Send the easy ones <laughs> to me, please. Give the hard ones to Elena. She'll figure it out. Well, this one isn't hard, but it is a little scientific. Uh, it's from listener Kathleen of Corvallis, okay. Oregon. Hey, Kathleen, what's up? And she hepped me to the current issue of Current Biology that mm-hmm. has an article about cockatoos and okay. how we now uh, have evidence of cockatoos using cockatools. <laughs> is that your addition to the story? Yeah, this is my this is my Reader's Digest pun pun version. I, like I don't know if you know this, but learning to use different tools, like when an animal learns to use different tools to achieve the same specific goal, that has been considered really rare in the animal kingdom. They mm-hmm. really think that only primates do it, or they did. Mm. Um, so this study actually is among a few studies that is kind of diversifying that and showing that tool usage is inherent to other species like cockatoos. Because there are these cockatoos on Tanimbar Island in Indonesia that a group has been studying for about five years. And not only do they take little sticks and use them to eat sea mangoes, they use them as wedges, right, to wedge open the sea mangoes. They use them as knives to stab the sea mangoes. And they use them as what they call spoons. Mm. But really, it's more like fun dip. You know, remember right. you, know, you get oh, like Lickamade when I was a lick-a-made. kid. Lickamade. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, here's what we should sell to children. Just little pouches of white powder that makes them feel excited. Yeah. But so it's not just that they use these tools. It's A, that they aren't genetically predisposed to use these tools like other I birds, see. like corvids are. And it's that they fashion the tools. So they don't just pull the sticks off. They whittle them to serve their desired effects. And this is only a few cockatoos among this group. And the thing that I really love about it is it reminds us that we need to look at animal complexity and animal behavior in very diverse, widespread ways and Mm -hmm. not this like chain of evolution that ends in humans. Right. Well, if we can, Elena, just um, recenter humans in the conversation. Uh My best news comes from France this week where this 107-year-old woman in France is releasing, like, her sixth piano album. 
And I just thought, oh, that must be a typo because to be 107 and to still be recording music and putting it out is like incredible. Well, it wasn't a typo. It's really the story of this woman, Colette Mays. She's 107 years old. She started playing the piano in France when she was five. Uh, Of course, this was at a time when there were all kinds of expectations uh, around women and what they should and shouldn't be doing. And so her family that seemed fairly well-to-do didn't think that playing the piano was a respectable thing for a woman to do. So they let her play, but it was never with the intention of it being her profession. It was just kind of a hobby. In fact, there was the big sort of audition for her to get to the next level of this prestigious academy that she was going to. And her parents went out of town and they made her stay in the maid's quarters. They wouldn't let her stay where the piano was. It's some real like Cinderella vibes going on. So she didn't pass into the next level of this prestigious academy. Anyway, she goes on to sort of live her life. Uh, She becomes a single mother, which was not done at the time. And so she was disinherited by her family. So (gasps) she worked as a teacher. But uh, she always just loved the piano. She had one son, and he just noticed that his mother just – he said that she sort of breathed through the piano. That was the – she would spend hours and hours a day on that thing. And so finally when she was in like her 90s, he said, should we record some of this piano playing? And she consented even though she's very humble about all of this, Colette is. And so he uh, got somebody in there to record and they put the album out and people loved it. And so she's been recording albums of piano music like from her 90s up until now and she is still very spry and able to play and doing amazing stuff. So this isn't she's released six albums over the course of like a 70-year career. It's like in the last 17 years. That's so beautiful. So it was like zero to 90, no albums. And then like 90 to 107, very, very prolific. Amazing. Knowing that there's maybe not just a second or third act, but fourth, fifth, and sixth acts for all mm. of us, that, for me, is the best news that I heard all week. All right, let's welcome our first guest on over to Livewire. Uh, she is the youngest Academy Award winner for Best Actress in a Leading Role for her work in Children of a Lesser God. She received nominations for four Emmy Awards for appearances on Seinfeld, Picket Fences, The Practice, and Law & Order SVU. And as if all that weren't enough, her latest film, Coda, won both the Grand Jury Prize and the Audience Award at this year's Sundance Film Festival. Marley, welcome to Livewire. Uh, for our radio listeners who can't see what we're doing, we're also being joined by uh, Jack Jason, who is Marley's longtime business partner and interpreter. Uh, Marley, congrats on all the love this film is getting. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello, everyone who's listening, except for the deaf people who can't hear me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> no, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with all of you. It's really exciting, and it's an exciting time. Uh, I thought it was interesting that your character, uh, who is uh, the mother in a, a family where the mother and father are deaf and one of their children is deaf, um, I don't know how to put this delicately. She's not the greatest mom. <laughs> <laughs> like she's, let's just say this: she's complicated. Was that part of the attraction to the role? Well, I mean, I'm I'm a mom of four, and I know how difficult it is. Jackie and myself, as mothers, we have strong maternal instincts, if you want to put it that way. Mm. So it's just that we approach it a different way. I mean, she had a different experience than I did growing up. Jackie did. I wouldn't say she was not a good mom. Mm -hmm. Um, She's just a different kind of mom in that, you know, she left her home, which was all hearing. And now she married a deaf man. And so she probably found 
the hearing world a little bit daunting for her. And she chose not to integrate herself into the community because of the way she was raised. She was always praised for her beauty and she eventually became a beauty queen. And that's all she felt she got Mm -hmm. from her family Mm. who, you know, didn't quite know how to communicate with a girl who was deaf. So because of that, she probably made sure when she became a mom that she would have uh, a, a different approach. And she hoped that it would be uh, with communication in the languages she's comfortable with because she married a deaf man. She had a deaf son. But then what happened was she got a hearing daughter. <laughs> and so, listen, she loves her daughter. She doesn't love her daughter any differently or less than her son. But her perspective is probably different as a result of the fact that she's hearing. Mm-hmm. There's a really poignant moment in the film where your character uh, sort of levels with her daughter who's hearing and says, I was sort of hoping you would be deaf um, so that we could have a closer relationship or what she thought might be a closer relationship. Um, As a person who was deaf in a hearing family, your parents all learned ASL and your family uh, really did what they could to sort of support you and and be able to have a fluid communication. I wouldn't say that they were fluent in ASL, Mm -hmm. I became fluent at lip reading and I then matched that up with their ASL as best they could. I mean, it would have been nice if they were more fluent, but naturally I didn't even think that way when I was growing up. Mm. I didn't have the sense of why don't you sign better uh, as well as I do. I didn't have that sense from them. Mm. I just was a kid who was fiercely independent Mm. and I was extremely curious and I was always asking questions as opposed to wallowing in, in, in self-doubt. I mean, I was busy exploring. I was busy making friends. I was out there doing so many things that um, my parents and my two brothers gave me a foundation that I could be independent like that. Did I hear right that you approached Henry Winkler when you were like 12 and the, the Fonz, for people who have forgotten, and told him that you wanted to be an actor? And then years later, you end up being an Oscar-winning actor, and you're like crashing at his house with his wife? (laughs) That's absolutely right. So what happened was, is he came to visit us in Chicago. He was there for a charity event, and I happened to be working and performing at the Center on Deafness. That's where I sort of, well, it's where I began my acting career. And they invited Henry and his wife, Stacy to watch us perform at the Center. And naturally, I knew who he was because I loved Happy Days. Mm -hmm. You know, I had an agenda. I didn't want to miss the opportunity to to talk to him and ask him if it was okay to be an actor in Hollywood, just like him, which I did. <laughs> As he was about to give me advice, someone took Henry aside and said, Henry, don't encourage Marley too much because you know how tough it is for hearing people in this industry. I can't mm-hmm. imagine what it'd be like for deaf people mm-hmm. and she might get disappointed. But Henry, you know, he just nodded his head and he turned around and looked me in the eye and said, Marley, sweetheart, you can be whatever you want to be as long as you set your heart to it and follow your dreams and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And I listened to that. And eight and a half years later, I was standing on a stage with an Oscar. Cool. But <laughs> as it so happened, after I got the Oscar, there were critics who said, for example, Rex Reed, who said mm. that uh, just the day after I won the Oscar, that my win the night before was the result of a pity vote. Yeah. Wow. And he said that I was a deaf actor playing a deaf role. So how was that considered acting or even the best? <laughs> and I think 
if I had understood what he was trying to say at the time, I probably would have said something in response. And what do you mean? So does that mean that when hearing actors play hearing roles, they don't deserve Oscars right, right. too? What, what are you trying to say? I mean, it was hard to understand where to go with my career. And I was just 21. So I flew out to California. And when he opened the door, I held up my Oscar. I was so shy. I just turned my head and said, here, here's my Oscar. And they had the biggest, <laughs> they had the biggest smiles on their face. And then Henry knew what had been said in the press. And he said the same thing again. You know, Marley, you can be whatever you want to be as long as you believe in yourself, but you're not finished, not by a long shot. Hmm. And so Stacy and Henry said, you know what, why don't you stay for the weekend for a couple of days and we can think it over. And then two years later, Stacy was telling me to clean my room because it was a guest who never left. <laughs> I mean, I had a pool house, uh, the rent was free and Stacy made the best brisket west of Chicago and their support was critical in my career. It was, it was very much needed, very much appreciated. And to this day, after knowing them for 40 years, I still thank them. Oh, wow. wow. This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We are talking to Oscar winner Marley Matlin with Jack Jason about her new film, Coda. We have to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we'll be back with much more in just a moment. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing, that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello and Marley Matlin, the Oscar-winning actor and uh cast member in the new film Coda, which won the Sundance uh, Grand Jury Prize uh, recently. It's on Apple TV right now. Um, it's sort of a well-known thing about this film, Marley, that after you were cast, there had been a plan to cast hearing actors in the roles of your husband and son who uh, are deaf in the film, and you were not having that. Were you really ready to walk away from the film if they were going to go forward with that plan? Well, I mean, I have had the opportunity to be in this business for 35 years and not to denigrate or, you know, say something bad about the industry. I think they're on a learning curve and mm. whether they, you know, whether I 
just left it alone or decided to walk away. I think when it came to casting, I guess as I got older, I have had enough. I've seen too many times when hearing actors play deaf characters as if they were costumes you could put on and take off at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I, I just said I was tired of it. I really was. So I felt comfortable in saying and making noise because I, I didn't want to do this alone. And again, not to, not to say something bad about actors who have played disability roles in the past, um, like um, Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man, um, or, or the many others. I mean, listen, I'm a fan of all their work, so there's no, there's no offense here. But I think it's time that we move on from that. And if we want to tell good stories and we want to have authentic actors playing the roles who live with disability, who live with being deaf, you get a more authentic portrayal. You get a more realistic portrayal. I mean, I'm not going to play a different race. I'm not going to play a different disability. We're talking about a whole different ballgame. And if you can find a bigger name that's that's well-known and that can play Frank, well, then go for it. I'm not going to be part of it. Mm. I had to say, stop. You know, I love this film. I love the script. I love Sean Hader, the director, and her vision, her work. And I really love the character of Jackie. And I can't even imagine playing this role of somebody who is hearing playing deaf. It just wouldn't work. It, it, it just wouldn't work for the film. It wouldn't work for the deaf community. It wouldn't work for everybody involved. You wouldn't have gotten a, a realistic portrayal. Uh. And I said, I'd walk away. And I wasn't angry. It was just time for me to make my point and speak out. And, and I was nervous. Admittedly, I was nervous uh, because I could have been easily you know, dismissed. But yet I knew deep down that people would eventually understand. They would get it. Yeah. And they would understand what the point I was trying to make, why it was so critical to have this role played authentically. Uh, your daughter, Ruby, in the film is an amazing singer, uh, which your character has sort of a hard time relating to because of uh, being deaf. I'm curious, though, uh, Marley Matlin, in real life, what is your relationship with music? I know you like Billy Joel and you were on Dancing with the Stars, so it sounds like <laughs> you're pretty into music. I love music. I love music. I have two older brothers who uh, you know, were raised in the 60s, and they were true hippies, and they really got into music. They introduced me to Billy Joel and to James Taylor, mm-hmm. and I learned to hear with my eyes and I learned the lyrics and I listened with my hearing aids and I learned the songs and I enjoy music. I enjoy music in my own way, if that makes sense. And um, yeah, there are people out there who are deaf who really love music. Some even um, are um, singers. There's a guy by the name of Sean Forbes. He's a deaf rapper. You should look him up. Um, He's based in Detroit. And uh, there are plenty of other people who are deaf who like music. Um, Mandy Harvey, who is deaf, who was on America's Got Talent. She's deaf and she sings. So uh, being on Dancing with the Stars was just a challenge for me. And my kids wanted me to be on the show (laughs) when they asked. I mean, I didn't really know much about the show when I was first asked. But my kids said, Mom, you got to do the show. But yeah, when I go to my kids' school concerts and they have recitals or plays or musicals, I'll go with my husband and my husband's hearing and I'll watch and I sit there and, and I try to enjoy it as best as I can in my own way. And I'll check out the other parents who are taking pictures and who are smiling and applauding. But it's just different than the way hearing people look or see concerts, clearly. As far as Jackie goes and Frank, they just come from a different world. And they were mm-hmm. thrust in this unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. And the whole movie is about them learning as they go along, all the whole family just growing. And uh, that's how it is. Mm-hmm. 
In getting ready to talk to you, Marley, I, uh, I watched a lot of your work and I read a lot of interviews with you. And it struck me that there is no time when you are ever getting to take a break from talking about deafness. Is that exhausting at some point? I mean, would you like, is there a different topic that you want to talk about, like the Chicago Bears or something? <laughs> no, the more we talk about it, the more that people will listen and learn mm -hmm. and just spread the message. So why not? It's how you make things happen. It's how you make things work. It's, I mean, it's about collaboration. It's the key. I can't be angry. I can't not want to talk about it because there's not enough people out there who are still not familiar with uh, deaf culture. If, if people weren't familiar, I mean, clearly I, I, I just have to keep talking. If they, if they were all familiar, then I wouldn't have to say anything anymore about it. But um, I, I just find that it's important to talk about the barriers, walk around the barriers. That's what Henry taught me. Mm -hmm. uh, this film is just getting so much love critically. And uh, of course at Sundance and I mean, I don't know, I guess, could you win another Oscar just to stick it to Rex Reed? <laughs> <laughs> well, you said it, stick it. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say stick it. I can smile at that, though. I can smile in agreement. <laughs> well, best of luck and really great job on the film. Uh, this It was just really incredible and, and really heartwarming and funny. Yes. Uh, Marley Matlin, the uh, film is Coda. It's on Apple TV right now and in select theaters. Thanks so much for coming on Livewire. And Jack, thank you so much as well. Thank you for listening. Hey, special thanks this episode to Chris Becker of my old stomps, Port Townsend, Washington. Chris is part of the Livewire member community and generously supports our show with a donation each month. We are so thankful for that support because it's how we are able to keep Livewire going. So Chris Becker, thank you so much for supporting our show. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we ask the Livewire listeners a question. This week we asked if you could give the teenage version of yourself any advice, what would it be? Folks have been sending in their responses. Elena, you've been gathering those up. What are people saying? <laughs> Here's one from Christine. Christine's advice, cancel that perm appointment. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever have a perm, Luke? I did not, but my mother got many a perm at the beauty school. Because, oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it was uh, pretty much free. Maybe you just paid for the chemicals or something. Uh huh. And, uh, you know, I'd sort of walk down there, you know, after baseball practice because I was trying to bum some money off her for, you know, candy cigarettes or something. And just the smell of the beauty school oh, yeah. permanent solution is just like a very strong sense memory for me. My mom gave me a series of home perms in the 80s, and I remember that smell really well. And then I would just, I had really long, straight hair. I would just look like a standard poodle for about 72 <laughs> hours, and then I would have my regular hair again. <laughs> I don't feel like anything got better by being permed, and yet mm -mm. it was often the solution. People would just keep perming their way out of the situation, and it would never <laughs> get better. Uh, I was watching a documentary about the uh, painter, Bob Ross. Oh, yeah. And, you know, he had a perm. And he yeah. used to call it, yeah, yeah, his hair, that, that, that kind of sort of wild hair that he had for his most popular days on public television was definitely a perm. And when he, had, when he needed to get a new one, he would say, I need to go in and get my springs tightened. <laughs> that was Bob Ross talking about his perm. All right. What's some other advice that our listeners would give to their teenage selves? Ah, how about this one from Sarah? Sarah says, stop caring about what boys think. You're going to marry a woman. <laughs> 
probably would save young Sarah a lot of time. <laughs> I'm sure there are many, many people who would give themselves that advice. You, you know, obviously everyone everyone is on their journey, but it's mm-hmm. weird how much stuff we, we spend uh, kind of concerning ourselves with, particularly when you're younger, that you look back later and you're like, well, that was not the tree I should have been barking up. Yeah, and I also I married a man, and I should have cared a lot less about what boys thought. So that's a good point. Go. I don't think it even matters who you end up uh, attracted to. It's just you know maybe we our teenage selves could all use a little bit less insecurity. I guess. Uh, <laughs> all right, one more before we get out of here. Piece of advice that a listener wants to give to their teenage self. This one works. It's from Tara. It works for both Tara's teenage self and for me. You will find your people, or they will find you. You're all looking for each other, and none of you know it yet. Wow. What a lovely thing. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's this great? idea that you just got all these little points of light circulating, kind of yeah. moving around, and they're in a, a sort of long-term way moving towards each other, even if they don't realize it. Yes. I love that one. Hooray for wow. Tara. That one's great. That's great. All right. We're going to have another listener question at the end of this episode, so do stick around for that. In the meantime, let's welcome our next guest onto the program. She is a critically acclaimed writer. Her work has covered a wide range of experiences. In Girlhood, her latest collection of essays, she blends investigative reporting, memoir, and scholarship to discuss the forces that shape girls and the adults that they become. Uh, We are so thrilled to have her back on the show to talk about it. Melissa Phoebos, welcome back to Livewire. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back. It's a really incredible book. I'm curious, what were you sort of setting out to explore uh, with it? I mean, obviously girlhood, but like specifically, what did you sort of want to talk about? Um, I know what kind of answer you're looking for, but I'm going to tell you the truth instead, which is that I did everything I possibly could to avoid writing this book and really sort of told myself that I was not writing a book for 90% of the time I was writing the book. And so it was only sort of afterward that I figured out what I was doing with the book, which was sort of rewriting the story of my own adolescence and like the comprehensive mind heck. (laughs) Um, The mind bleep of, you know, being an adolescent girl in America um, and sort of how that shaped my mind going forward and the extent to which I found it possible to sort of undo that, you know, mind bleep. I'd read an interview you did where you said, you know, you didn't really want to be sort of opening a vein, as they now say, uh, on each page of this book, because, you know, you've written uh, other books that have been really well received and are beautifully written books, but they're about, you know, uh, pretty serious topics, um, you know, drug use and, uh, you know, working in the sex industry. And here you are with this book that's also very powerful emotionally, but it sounds like you were kind of trying to not do a third book where you're just kind of in a very deeply emotional place. Yeah, I mean, there's that part of me, which like anyone who's been in therapy for a long time is going to relate to where I was like, come on, aren't we done yet? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, we're never done. The more we dig, the more there is to dig. But I didn't want to write a grim book about how our society messed me up. Like, Mm. I I already know that. All of us sort of already know that, right? So I wanted it to be a book about restoration and about hope and about joy and about orgasms and about like how to have um, a beautiful life within the constraints of that fact and sort of what kind of agency is possible once we've recognized the ways we've been constrained. Was there a moment in the process of writing these discrete pieces that eventually became a book that that energy came in? 
Yeah. I mean, I think the energy was sort of there, nascent. I just wasn't really aware of it. Um, but for me, I think it sort of breached my consciousness. There's a very long essay in here, which I did this in my last book and I swore I wasn't going to do it again, but there's like a really, really long essay about going to a cuddle party and a million other things. Mm -hmm. And when I was writing that, it just had that like, uh, never ending sort of clown car feeling that I'm sure you <laughs> understand when you're writing an essay and you're like, whoa, that's in here too. Like Foucault, where did you come from? You know? Yeah. It's like Mary um, Poppins's bag, you know, like there's exactly. a lamp in here and a, a street car. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I just kept pulling things out, like from my own history, from other kinds of reading. And it became really clear to me that this essay was in a really intimate conversation with everything I had been writing. And I think it was after I drafted that one that I thought, okay, I'm going to look at this monster for what it is and try to figure out how to make it the best thing it could be. This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarella. We are talking to Melissa Phoebos. Uh, her new book is Girlhood. Could we hear uh, a little reading from the book, Melissa? Sure. This is from the chapter titled uh, Wild America. Yep. And this is, uh, this is one of my favorite essays in the book. By the time I was 13, I had divorced my body like a bitter divorced parent. I accepted that our collaboration was mandatory. I needed her and hated her all the more for it. Despite my deep sympathy for all other animals, I was sociopathic in my cruelty toward this one. When she disobeyed me in her hunger, in her clumsiness, I was punitive and withholding. I scrutinized and criticized and denigrated her ceaselessly, even in dreams. Not before or since have I felt such animosity toward another being. There were moments, though. As a teenager at night, alone in my bedroom, sometimes the illusion of autonomy from my body would crumble, and I would be flooded by the most profound sorrow and tenderness. I would look at my strong legs, each scar on my knees a memory my soft little belly that had absorbed so much hate. Even my hands, like two loyal dogs that no amount of cruelty would banish. I suddenly saw my body as I would any animal that had been so mistreated. My poor body, my precious body. How had I let her be treated this way? My body was me. To hate my own body was to suffer from an autoimmune disease of the mind. In these moments, I had the thought that I was mentally ill, in the literal sense, for what else could describe this hostile relationship to my very own body? I had no way to differentiate what aspects of my behavior were inherently me and what were cultural impositions, insofar as this task is ever possible. What I could see clearly was the violence with which I treated the body that held custody of those other ineffable aspects that I considered to be myself. It held me and I ought to have held it with equal care. I was unspeakably remorseful, as I imagine any abuser would be in such a moment of self-appraisal. I sat in the dark and hugged myself. I'm sorry, I whispered, and squeezed my own shoulder. I love you, I said. When I slept, the veil would draw once more. In the morning, I rose from my bed and looked in the mirror with disdain. You again. Now, those moments seem proof that self-love is an instinct, as animal as any other function of the self. The ferocity of my affection could not be erased, only suppressed under total vigilance. My self-hatred was not self-generated. It was an expression of the environment outside of my body, which it eventually turned out I could change. 
That was Melissa Phoebos here on Livewire reading from her book, Girlhood. Um, how old were you when you felt something shift in terms of like how the world was perceiving you? Because that seems to be sort of the kind of the jumping off point for this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, you know, I was a really sort of athletic, outgoing, like silly, confident kid until until I was about like 11, early in my 11th year, maybe even 10. Um, and I developed, I started developing early. Um, and that was really sort of the shift when I started to sort of um, feel much more conscious of being in a girl category, which was partly a privilege. It took that long uh, because I had a family that um, was very careful to sort of not do that. And it wasn't until sort of the outside world was like, no, you can't dress like that. You can't act like that. This is actually what your body means, um, that everything started to change. And did you have kind of words for that or a sense of what was going on when you were that age or is it only now that you're looking back on it and thinking about it a lot to kind of describe, you know, what's happening to, in particular, you know, to women when mm-hmm. they start to, mm-hmm. you know, when they go through girlhood, I guess. Well, it's confusing, right? Because no, of course, I did not have the words to describe it. And, but I had words to describe it. Like I was given some words the way that we all are, where it's like, your body's changing. You're becoming a woman. It's really beautiful. Your body's a temple. People should respect it. Like I had all of those information, the same way that they told me in the DARE program, like say no to drugs, you know, but they didn't tell me how to make people respect my body or how to like exist within it as if it was a holy space. Um, and it's not an intuitive process knowing how to do those things. Like it's learned. Right. And so it was all sort of happening beneath the surface, you know, and of course no one was even saying, you know, your body's worth has now been distilled to its sexual use. Like nobody was saying that, but that message was really, really clear, but it's hard to name things that other people aren't talking about. And it's hard to argue with them as well. Right. So, and because I think for me, and, and I know for a a lot of young folks, um, the, it, it's such a generator for shame, that experience and not having words for it and feeling disempowered in your body that that, even if I could have talked about it, I don't think I could have talked about it, honestly, because I was like, I would have been way too mortified. Mm. You know, there was just no way really until I came out the other side, like in my 20s and 30s. You talk to a lot of girl-identified people in the book, mm-hmm. like the, the essay mm-hmm. on Peeping Toms. You interview a mm-hmm. bunch of female-identified people about experiences that they've had. I'm assuming, too, that a lot of girl-identified people are reading the book and have experienced this level of silence when they were younger. So what has the mm-hmm. response been from readers who have come out on the other side and then now have this book to mm-hmm. sort of give language to that experience? It's been so overwhelming and rewarding for me. Um, and I say, what I'm going to say next, I think sometimes doesn't sound that believable, but you know, it would absolutely be worth it if no one else ever read this book just for the process of what it did inside of me and in my life. Um, but I have heard from so many people across the gender spectrum, which is really, really rewarding because one of my fears, especially in calling it girlhood, was that it would feel like it was only speaking to people who were assigned female at birth. And mm. anyway, I've heard from all kinds of people who identify with the experiences and are so have expressed a lot of gratitude for having words for things that they didn't talk about, you know? Yeah. And for me, it, you know, it was like, 
the thing that I'm going for that I'm hoping is happening on the other end is recognition, mm-hmm. right? It's when you see that, that shaky moment when you read something that's been in your own head, but maybe that's never come out of your mouth or, or at least you've never written it down. We are talking to Melissa Phoebos here on Livewire about her latest book, Girlhood. Um, I think that, you know, you mentioned, Melissa, that you were hoping that the name Girlhood didn't make this seem like it was just a book uh, for, for women to read. And I have to say, as like a cis male, I've just found this to be so illuminating because obviously there's a huge amount of privilege around being in the body that I'm in. And there's just so many things that I don't ever think about in the world. And to read you and the other people in this book talking about what your experiences are. Like, I do feel like it's actually kind of a, as important a book for, for, you know, men to read as well as, you know, mm-hmm. people who've been through this, um, you know? That is so gratifying to hear because that is exactly my hope for this book, you know, that I was going to sort of offer my experience and the experiences of the people that I spoke to and have that be sort of a bank of information of stuff that we don't talk about, you know, or that is not widely talked about. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting as I was writing it, you know, there are men in this book, um, some of them in unpleasant interactions. And, you know, even in writing those scenes, I had tremendous empathy for a lot of the boys and men that I was writing about and who I was thinking about, because if we don't talk about it, how will we know? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it is not safe to assume based on social scripts what a other people are thinking and feeling and nobody knows unless we tell them. Right. And so I just wanted to put more information into the atmosphere and I'm, I'm really glad that it landed that way for you. You know, this book is written with the, the sort of benefit of hindsight and perspective for you. And, you know, it's, it's about your girlhood and other people's girlhoods. And what would be, would be amazing would be if that knowledge and what you've now kind of figured out could be offered to somebody who's currently going through girlhood. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like, what would you go mm-hmm. back and say to the 11 year old version of yourself who's like about to go on this journey now that you kind of know mm-hmm. how a lot of the story unfolds? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. And, you know, it's a version of that question that I've been asked a lot since the book came out. Lots of people with adolescence or kids verging on adolescence, like, what do I do? <laughs> yeah. um, and honestly, like, you know, for the like 11 year old kids in my life, I think that the most powerful thing that we can do for them isn't what we say, it's what we do, right? It's the ways that, because my parents said the right things. Like I had people in my life who were saying the right things, but I was watching everybody, you know? And, And I think the sort of, the real standard that we set is the ways that we respect the sovereignty of our own bodies, the ways that we respect other people's no's and maybe's and yeses. Um, and so, you know, I think it's good news and bad news for a lot of people is that sort of doing the inner work ourselves is the best way that we can offer that to young people. Well, Melissa Phoebos, uh, this is a really incredible book. Uh, it's called Girlhood. And uh, thanks for writing it. And thanks for coming on Livewire to talk about it. Oh, it was my joy. Thank you so much for having me. I love Livewire. This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We have to take a quick break, but stay with us because when we come back, we are going to hear some wonderful music from Ida May. Don't go anywhere. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends. 
like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LiveWire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, our musical guest this hour uh, is a husband and wife duo. They've performed with everyone from Willie Nelson and Alison Krauss to Marcus King and Greta Van Fleet. No Depression calls their music endlessly engaging, and American Songwriter calls their latest album a varied, enticing, and alluring listen. Ida May, welcome to LiveWire. Thank you so much for having us. I know that you have uh, been playing uh, in the live setting again, and you're kind of heading all over the world. So thanks for uh, taking the time to sit down with us and, and play a song. I'm, I'm curious, Chris, if I read right, you kind of got your start in sort of what would be considered alternative rock and grunge. And uh, the stuff that I've listened to from Ida May is just sonically a big departure from that. Like, how did you end up where you are now from where you started out? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, well me and Steph grew up on a pretty strict diet of kind of British folk music and then mm. that slowly turned into rock and roll discovering Detroit bands like you know the White Stripes and the Go and Von Bondies and stuff like that so w- when we kind of started that's where we were at we kind of traced back to very early blues music and very early folk music and we kind of our first outfit was a rock and roll band so me and Steph were in this grungy punky rock yeah. and roll band um, and as that kind of came to a a standstill and an end, we ended up deciding, okay, we want to do Ida May, but we want to do something that's very gentle and, and let the songs speak for themselves, really. How long have you been collaborating, both uh, romantically and also musically? Because it sounds <laughs> like you've been on this journey together from a pretty young age. We have, yeah. I mean, we got signed in our first band when we were 19. Wow. Um, and then we just disappeared off around Europe for <laughs> a number of years. Um, and then, yeah, still going now. I won't say how long because that will tell you how old we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's that like to have a, a sort of a creative partnership for all those years? Because, like, you know, you're both evolving your, like, taste and, and kind mm. of your sense of the kind of music you want to make. But you're also doing it while in a relationship with this other person. To be honest, it's all we kind of really know because yeah. we've been doing this since we were so young. But mm. uh, especially in uh, creatively, we're almost kind of always on the same page yeah kind of 90 percent of the time it's a little bit strange i think we're lucky there even when it comes to artwork or lyrics or melody writing or arrangement we we very quickly kind of have a gut gut reactions that are very similar and i don't know it's it's strange you kind of have this creative compass that slowly aligns so Mm. you know you have the same the decision making process is made much much faster Uh, i mean but i mean we weren't we weren't romantically involved when we first started working together so we still squabble like teenagers yeah. <laughs> sometimes that's as bad as it gets as we squabble you know we do but that's about it <laughs> i understand that you wrote this record while a lot of about while road tripping around the u.s mm. Where, i mean how does that work exactly i hear artists talk about that like are you driving down the road and you see something and you just make a note in a notebook like <laughs> write a song about that roadside stand or like how does that actually work it is actually completely odd it was actually um kind of harder harder than that so we had a driver for some of the shows and uh, he was driving his Kia car and I was <laughs> cooped up in the back, surrounded by flight cases and amplifiers and what have you. So and I would actually because I was like, you know, how are we going to write this record? We're constantly touring on the road with everyone saying yes to everything. So I actually had like 
phone recordings of my of guitar riffs and stuff and chords and that sort of thing on my voice memos and I was writing poetry at the same time again on the notes on my phone and I ended up in the back of this car just on earbuds piecing together the lyrics and, and poetry with the riffs that I'd already written so I, I kind of ended up writing a lot of the songs without even a guitar in my hand I kind mm. of jigsawed them together it was quite quite strange wow you know? In the back of a Kia. Yeah, Kia. Yes, in the back of a Kia, <laughs> to be precise. Yeah. Yeah. When you hear someone has a driver, you don't normally associate <laughs> the car that is being driven with the Kia. Kia is not the next word. It's not yeah. rock and roll, is it? It's not rock and roll, a four-door sedan or whatever it is, yeah. Well, the uh, the, the final product is really amazing. And, yeah. and speaking of which, we're going to hear a song now. What song are you going to play? Uh, we're going to play a song called Raining For You, which is one of the first songs that we tracked uh, for the album. And uh, it's one of our favorites. All right, let's hear some Ida May here on Livewire.
is Ida May. Woo! Oh, it's awesome. Chris Turpin and Stephanie Jean right here on Livewire. I mean, to think that that was written in the back of a Kia. <laughs> Something get that beautiful one, really. and moving. I mean, it's an accomplishment. A bit like a Kia. Really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was so great. Thank you so much for coming on Livewire. Well, thank, well, thank you, you so, so much for having us. us. Thank you. That was Ida May right here on Livewire. Their album, Click Click Domino, is available now. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We're going to be talking to Jamie Loftus about her podcast, which takes a look at the literary classic Lolita from a feminist perspective. Also, genius comedy person Demi Adigi eBay will swing by and explain how he's basically, as they uh, say, been breaking the internet once a year for the past six years. Plus, we'll have some incredible music from The War and Treaty. They are a married duo, and the husband, Michael, he actually learned how to play piano while he was deployed to Iraq. Um, The uh, piano that he learned on was once owned by Saddam Hussein, if you can believe that. So we'll hear more about that from them next week. And as always, we're going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we going to be asking the Livewire listeners next week? Oh, I love this one. What would your podcast be about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, considering we'll all soon have one, people should get their topics in order. Uh, If you have an answer for your future podcast that you're going to be creating, go ahead and send it to us by way of Twitter or Facebook. We are at LiveWire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Marley Matlin with Jack Jason, Melissa Phoebos, and Ida May. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Special thanks this episode to Joshua Leake and the Portland Film Festival, which runs from October 6th to November 8th. You can find out more about the festival over at portlandfilmfestival.com. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sebchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff this week. We'd like to thank member Chris Becker of Port Townsend, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.